Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans, the sixth chapter. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. Everybody say, reckon yourselves. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield or surrender yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. There ought to be excitement in our worship. We've been raised back to life and your members as instruments in righteousness of God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. I like a statement like that. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are also whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. Taking my thought this morning from verse 11, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. And I want to preach this morning from this title, A Day of Reckoning. A day of reckoning. The Amplified puts our key verse this way. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, and your relationship to it is broken. But alive to God in unbroken fellowship with Him in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, God, for the wonderful spirit of worship that is here. God, we are so grateful, Lord. We're overwhelmed by your presence, Lord, that moves among your people today, God, that you came to minister, God. You came to shed your love abroad in our hearts this morning, Lord, and we're so grateful. We feel it in this room this morning. God, I pray that anointed word as it's given to your people right now, God, that that same anointing that fashioned it, God, by men of old, Lord, as they were anointed by the Holy Ghost, that same Holy Ghost would be in the room this morning. In Jesus' name, touch us now. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. A day of reckoning. I am grateful that God has been and is being blessed by God. My life is being blessed by God. How many can say your life is being blessed by God? My life has been blessed. My life is being blessed. And I believe my life will be blessed. So I want to declare this morning that I woke up today as a child of God. I, I will work through life today as a child of God, and I will pillow my head tonight as a child of God, as those who have been blessed by the Lord, as those who have been called out and those who have been saved. As the church, there are some things that you and I need to be, and we need to be completely sure of. You never have to doubt your salvation. You never have to doubt your experience with God. 
You never have to doubt the love of God that is calling in your life. You never have to doubt the word of God that speaks to you on a daily basis. You never have to do that. But with that being said, let me tell you, there will always be a voice that is telling you to doubt. This voice will never disappear. It doesn't really matter how long you serve God. It doesn't matter if you've served him nine minutes or 90 years. There will still be that voice of doubt that is evident in your life that wants you to doubt his love, that wants you to doubt his salvation, that wants you to doubt his word. It will never disappear, but you are the one who decides whether you will listen to that voice or not. The Bible calls your adversary, calls Satan. He is the, first of all, he's the one that's behind the voice of opposition in your life. Let's just go ahead and out him this morning. The Bible calls him a liar. He calls him an accuser. In John 10 and 10, it calls him a killer, calls him a thief, calls him a destroyer. That certainly doesn't sound like someone that we should be listening to. Why do we listen to that voice? If there was someone who came into your house and you knew they were an axe murderer and they have somehow gotten behind your front door, you would be sitting at your kitchen table, maybe a shotgun by your side and a knife in the other hand saying, I wish this person would just leave my house. Why? Because you're afraid of their reputation. Can we just be honest this morning? You know what? The devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a killer. He is a destroyer. He is not someone you want to allow in your home. He's not someone you want to allow in your family. He is not someone you want to allow to speak into your life. He has no business speaking into your life. So it is you who decides whether or not you listen to this voice of doubt. So today we're going to settle some things in our mind. Our salvation will no longer be up for debate. Merriam-Webster defines the word reckoning as an act or an instance of reckoning such as an accounting or such as settling a bill, such as figuring or totaling, the calculation even of a ship's position, the, the settling of accounts, a summing up of. I remember having a piggy bank as a kid. Anybody remember those big pink ceramic piggy banks? Those were some serious banks. They were only for the serious saver. Now, I don't want to give away my age this morning, but back in the day, we didn't have a nice, neat plastic plug on the bottom of the pig. You remember it, right? It's this big, almost fluorescent pink pig. It's been painted just so and baked in the kiln, in the kiln and, and, and they bring it home to you and you're just so pleased that you have this bank. And as you begin to save your pennies and you hear that clink of the coin in the bottom of the bank and, and it's not long until you no longer, Brother John, hear that clink because it's going up to other coins that are there. And it's not long until that bank gets really heavy and all of a sudden there's a day of reckoning that must take place. 
Because if you wanted to get the money out of the bank, you had to make a decision that you were willing to break the pig. It's at that moment, that, I mean, you have no idea what's in there, but in that moment when you finally wrecking those things, you'll, you'll be able to realize how much money you have saved. And the pig, too, will experience a sort of final reckoning. You and I, we experience a day of reckoning when we decide to follow Jesus. There ought to be a finality to our decision. We know that our life has been forever changed. We can never be the same again. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, our text, it says, Likewise reckon ye also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus. You can live life, you can survive without really knowing many different things. Things like algebra. I read the other day in a social media post that somebody had written and said, well, that's it. I got through another day without using algebra. The truth is you can probably survive without knowing algebra. When in doubt, Z always equals three. You can probably live without knowing answers to certain questions. Like why do you park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? That's a mystery to me. You could probably live without really knowing what the secret is and how they get the caramel inside the caramel bar. But here in our text, Paul is telling us about one thing that must be settled. One thing that must be reckoned. One thing that you must know. That is this, you need to reckon that you have been saved. You have been gone from life to death. You have gone from darkness to light. You have gone from being lost to being found. Once that day of reckoning happens, once you realize you are free, things are forever changed in your life. The enemy will no longer be able to keep you in bondage. The enemy will no longer be able to have his way with you anymore. For too long you've paid attention to his lies. You don't have to listen to him anymore. You don't have to give him the attention that he thinks he needs anymore. James says resist the devil and he will flee from you. There are some things that the adversary needs to understand about me this morning. I was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I am not who I used to be. I don't do what I used to do. I don't say what I used to say. I don't go where I used to go. You see, I have been forever changed by the Spirit and the power of God. I reckon myself dead to sin, but alive unto God. Reckon here is used in our text as an accounting word. 
Paul tells us to account or to reckon the old man as forever being dead. When you're doing the books, you mark the old man dead. But death to sin, it is really only one side of the equation. Yes, the old man is gone. But there's a new man that lives. Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You know, this statement is something that only a true Christian can understand. It can only be understood by one who has had the old man crucified with Christ. It's something that can be only understood by somebody who has become a new man in Christ Jesus. Only the person who has been set free by God from sin can be told, do not let sin reign. Without Jesus working in your life, it is hopeless to try to resist the flesh and the enemy. You need the Spirit of God working in your life. The truth is, without Jesus, you'll be forever bound. But if Jesus sets you free, then you are free forever. We're kind of quiet this morning, but can I say, if Jesus set you free, you are free forever. That is a statement that ought to make the heart of every saint of God that is in the house this morning excited and rejoice in who you are. The fact that you've been called out of darkness and into light. Come on, you're not who you used to be. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you are free indeed. The Amplifier says, so if the Son liberates you, if he makes you a free man, you are really and unquestionably free. Don't let the enemy put that into question in your life any longer. In the 1800s, there were more than 4 million men, women, and children who were slaves in the United States. It was President Abraham Lincoln who issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which was declared that as of January 1st, 1863, all, all enslaved people in the states currently engaged in rebellion against the Union shall be then and thenceforth and free forever. It was this proclamation that would change the world. It was this proclamation that would go down as a history-altering document. The great evangelist D.L. Moody, he used to speak of an older woman in the South following the Civil War. Being a former slave, she was confused about her status, and she asked, Now, am I free, or am I not free? When I go to my old master, he says, I ain't free. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but my old master says he didn't. My old master says he didn't have any right to. This is exactly the place many Christians are. They are and have been legally set free from the slavery of sin. Yet they remain waffling and unsure of that truth. But we just read it. The Bible says that he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And I want you to know this morning, if the Bible said it, you can believe it. If the Bible said it, you can bank on it. If the Bible said it, that settles it. We can reckon that together this morning. There was a day of reckoning that took place on a cross of Calvary, and you are forever free this morning. You don't have to go back to the old Master and asked him, Emma, Emma, 
You don't have to go to the enemy and ask permission, am I free? You don't have to go to him and say, did something take place where I can now celebrate? Come on, somebody, you're not bound anymore. He that the Son has set free is free indeed. We've been asking questions long enough. We've been asking permission of the old master long enough. We've been going back to the old things long enough. You have been set free. I feel the Holy Ghost this morning. In Jesus, we are truly free. But to be truly free, you must receive it. You must embrace the freedom that you were given and live like someone who has been set free. That's why there are people that don't understand our worship. Because they've never been set free. That's why people don't know how to celebrate. Because they haven't been set free. That's why sometimes when I get to moving and I get to dancing, it offends some people. Why? Because you haven't yet been set free. Come on, I've heard from the Lord. Paul urged us not to allow ourselves to be returned to bondage because Christ has made us free. He said to the church in Galatia, he said in 5 and 1, he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul says you don't have to go back there. You and I are now free from sin. We are now offered the opportunity to obey what now becomes our natural inclination in the new man and that is to please God. That is to honor God. That is to worship God. You see when you're truly set free you can't help but worship. When you're truly set free you can't help but celebrate. When you're truly set free you can't help but tell somebody I've been set free. And you are now free from sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign. The old man is dead, and there is new life. A life that is free from sin. A life that is free in Christ Jesus. Yet many Christians, they never experience this freedom. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of self-reliance. Because of ignorance of who God is and what he can do. Because of doubt. Many Christians never live in the freedom Jesus bought for us on the cross. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, If you live after the flesh, you shall die. Sounds hopeless to me. But if you live through the, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Come on, you woke up this morning as a child of God. If children, then heirs and heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. If so, that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. In verse 18, here again, he refers back to this accounting word. For I reckon the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, when you are reckoned that you no longer are a slave anymore, as Paul did, there's some other things that you're going to begin to reckon in your life. Paul makes a list of pros and cons. and He says, for I reckon the sufferings of the present time, and then I reckon what the glory of that's going to be revealed in this. He makes this list of pros and cons. Paul analyzes the present suffering. He looked at the future glory. And then he comes to a conclusion. He says, these two aren't even close. These two shouldn't even be compared. The Amplified puts it this way. For I consider from the standpoint of faith that the sufferings of the present life that are not, wor- are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us and in us. You see, Paul had not been fooled into thinking that his Christian life would be free of suffering. The life of discipleship, the life of the cross will never be free of suffering. It'll never be free of trouble and trial and things that come. Paul was not ignorant or blind to the sufferings of human existence. In fact, if you look and study the life of Paul, he likely experienced more issues than most of us here today. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of Jews five times I received forty stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A day and a night have I been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils in water, in perils of robber, in dangers by my own countrymen, in perils by heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings, offering hunger and thirst and fasting. Paul had no doubt experienced horrific things in his life. Yet Paul still considered the future glory far outweighed what he was going through. So don't get overwhelmed by your present situation. Don't be overcome by your present circumstances. What God has prepared for you, it is going to be so worth it. It's going to be worth it all. It's going to be worth it all. Every long trial, every mile you've went, every day you've woke up and said, I don't think I can make it, every time... Come on, it's going to be worth it all. Some beautiful, happy day. Weeping indoors for the night. But the psalmist said, I know what it is to weep. But I found that joy comes in the morning. So why don't you just keep on going? Why don't you just keep on trusting? Why don't you just keep on believing? Come on, somebody. God has something much greater for you than where you're at. I feel the presence of God in the house today. You see, without a heavenly hope, Paul considered the Christian life foolish and tragic. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 and 19, he said, in this life, if in this life only we had hope in Christ, we would be of all men most miserable. You know what he was saying? He's saying, if it was just a fantasy here in the earth, And I'd be a miserable man. But Paul had already reckoned that there was a life that's beyond the life he was living here on earth. 
that there was, there was something that he had to gain that was so much greater than what he was going through. You see, if we live with the hope of eternity, if we live with hope putting our faith in God, it is the wisest, it is the best choice that you could ever make for you, for your family, and for those that follow you. Psalm 40 and verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are usward. Think about that. God's thinking about us. Here's that word again. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, there are more than can be numbered. David was known as a worshiper. He was known as someone who rejoiced and celebrated as he praised God. He praised God as the worker of many miracles and many works. Celebrated that God had thoughts towards his people. David knew that God thought about him. David knew that God thought about Israel. He also knew that God thought favorably about the people. Now we could pause there for a while. God has favorable thoughts toward me, toward you, and toward our world. We don't have to fulfill any prerequisite for him to have good thoughts toward us. We sang about it just a while ago, his goodness and his mercy. It's following us all the days of our life. David's amazed that God has these favorable thoughts toward him because he knows that he's failed God several times on different occasions. In Psalm 8 and 4, David wondered, he said, What is man, what is humanity, that thou art mindful of him or them? David considered the greatness of the universe, and he was amazed that God would think about humanity at all. But here he takes that idea even further, and he is amazed by how much God thinks about his people and what God thinks about his people it's all good David also amazed that God's thoughts are so loving so gracious so merciful so kind and so forgiving God's thoughts toward his people are so many the psalmist said that they can't be numbered that's one thing that you'll never be able to reckon God loves you so much. Somebody said God's thoughts toward us are wonderful because they are God's thoughts. When I think, it is a poor, little, weak, empty head that is thinking, Spurgeon said. But when God thinks, a gigantic mind which framed the universe is the one thinking upon me. You see, you cannot count God's thoughts of you. One gracious thought is followed by another swiftly as beams of light flash from the sun so that it is impossible for us to number them. Several years ago, Carol Magruder wrote a song titled, It Sounds Too Good to Be True. But it is. Isn't that the truth about what God has done in your life? It sounds too good to be true. But it is. And when we say it sounds too good to be true, full disclosure, that's why we fall 
to the lies of the enemy. This can't be true. I can't be free now. Surely he couldn't have saved me from all that. Yes, it sounds too good to be true. But it is. The old hymn talked about a day of reckoning. It says there was a time on earth when in the books of heaven that an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top. There were many things below. But I went into the keeper and I settled long ago. How many are grateful the old account was settled long ago? Verse 2 describes our life. It says the old account was large. It was growing every day. I was always sinning. I never tried to pray. But when I looked ahead and saw such pain and woe, I thought I better get it settled. So I settled long ago. I'm here to remind somebody today that you have been forgiven. The sin is no longer on your record. Your past is no longer your story. Your failure is now long, no longer seen as your history. So you don't need to live under a cloak of guilt and shame and condemnation. Because each and every day of our lives, we must live like free and forgiven people. I said every day of your life, you need to live like you've been set free and that you have been forgiven. Musicians, come and help me this morning. We can all stand. As a people of God, we are to live a life with intention and purpose. To simply decide to coast through life, listening to whatever voice is in your mind, going with whatever whim happens to be on your spirit. Coasting is inviting spiritual disaster into your life. Living the spiritual life is not a coasting life. Living a disciplined life is not a coasting life. It takes effort, it takes purpose, and it takes intention. In the book of Chronicles, we read of King Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 3, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all the land. What does it mean to set yourself to seek the Lord? Well, those words would certainly mean something different for everybody because of our roots and because of our background, because of our story. But for Jehoshaphat, it meant stepping away from things that he had looked to before so he could step toward God. He set himself to seek the Lord, to find wisdom for the situation. For him, it meant fasting. It meant prayer. It meant gathering together God's people. It meant worship and the reading of Scripture. In 2024, Pentecostals of Miramichi, we are setting ourselves to seek the Lord as those who are living a life of freedom and forgiveness. In closing this morning, there are some things that I want to reckon. I reckon that I am free from bondage. I reckon that I am free from sin. I reckon that I am free from guilt. 
and I reckon that I am free from fear. I also reckon that what I am going through will be worth it all. Every test, every trial, every trouble, every bit of torment, every tribulation I have to go through, it will be worth it all. Because of a day of reckoning that took place on Calvary's cross, you and I today have the opportunity to live as free and forgiven people. Amen. I wonder if you would join me in celebration in the altar this morning as we celebrate who we are in Christ.